Good morning. Great to see you, great to hear you in such fine voice uh, today. Um, we are going to be looking this week at Paul's letter to his friends at Philippi. Uh, Heather and I moved into this area, well, basically near Clock Mills, where we now live, um, about seven years ago. But as the locals will know, we're still described as blow-ins. And uh, the other day, Heather was in the local butcher, and uh, she was greeted after she spoke. He realized she's not from around here. And she was greeted with this, are you far-fetched? <laughs> um, for those of you who don't understand the accent, far-fetched. Now, Heather uh, was a teacher, and she understands her English very well. Uh, so what was the question, are you implausible? Are you unlikely? Was this butcher a budding philosopher? Eventually, though, reversing the word order, uh, the penny dropped. And yes, we are fetched from far if our ma is far. Not, of course, as far as Rosaria. So, Rosaria, are you far-fetched? <laughs> yes, you are, indeed. Indeed. It's great to be here. My uh, main focus and passion, as many of you know, is to... Uh, teach the Bible and to help others to get into God's Word for themselves. And it's just such a privilege to get to do this and to have Philippians as our text uh, this week. It's a book that's played a very significant role in my own life. Just about every major turning point, every major decision involved me just sitting quietly somewhere and reading through this letter. It was from Philippians 1 that I was challenged as a young student that how I use my mind is both an expression and a measure of how I love God. And that was a very significant moment for me as a student. And so over the years, taking time simply to read it as a letter to do what we do. Of course, letters are getting a little old-fashioned these days. Emails don't have quite the same thing. There's no scent with an email, um, no nice blue paper, and so on. But letters are so important. And when you get a letter, you don't just read the first line or two and put it away and say, that's that's it for this week, folks. You get the next installment next week. You actually read it all. And it's one, actually, of the most revolutionary things you can do in your spiritual life is to learn that habit simply of taking a short book of the Bible, since if you read Genesis, it's going to take a long time, but start with some of the shorter books like Philippians and, and just read it through. Train yourself to read it through without distraction, without interruption. Read it through, and when you've done that, read it through again. And when you've done that, read it through again. It's very simple. Not reading commentaries, not writing notes or anything. Just taking time to let the Word of God get a grip of your heart and your mind to give, if I can put it this way, humanly speaking, the Holy Spirit the opportunity to use His Word in your life. That's what I hope will happen this week. I hope that what I say will be of some help. But far beyond that is the benefit, is the immediacy, is the personal relationship building that comes from hearing God's voice through His 
word. So why not just accept the challenge for this week? To read Philippians at least once a day, if not twice a day. And if you can do it ten times a day, please do that as we go through. That will help you enormously uh, as we study it together. And as you do it, allow God to set the agenda. That may sound strange, but let me explain it this way. Heather and I have four children. All are now in their 30s. And growing up, each of them had their own personality, their own outlook, their own personal agendas. And quite naturally, they all wanted to be heard, often at the same time. And one of the challenges of parenting is to encourage patience and waiting to grasp that the world actually is not all about them. That's a real challenge probably for all of us. Their enthusiasm, their sense of urgency and discovery often drove them to interrupt adult conversation. And occasions, I would have to say, wait just a moment, be patient, daddy is speaking. (laughs) Now I want to suggest we take that and we apply it to Scripture. We all have problems, often more than one. We all have our individual personal agenda. We all have our questions. And the overwhelming temptation is for us to allow these questions, these problems, these concerns to dominate our listening and our conversations with our Heavenly Father. And then when we don't get the answers we're looking for, we go away disappointed. And perhaps we need these words, be patient. Daddy is speaking. So for these times, can we leave aside those perplexing, troubling questions? This letter will raise enough questions of its own, not all of them easy to answer. But we want to follow them. We want to allow God to set the topic of conversation. It's not all about us. Let him set the topic. I don't feel under pressure to cover everything, even if I could. My major aim is try to tease out the flow of thought of what God is raising for us. The text is the Holy Spirit's sermon. You don't need one from me. This is the Holy Spirit's sermon, and his sermons are by far the best. One theologian has described Philippians as the most attractive Pauline letter, and I think I understand what he means by that. Its tone is so encouraging. It's friendly, it's positive, while remaining completely real. It emphasizes, interestingly, certain key psychological terms like joy, confidence, peace. Its emphasis is on God's work in us. It is deeply personal. It exposes Paul's heart, his affection, his concern for others, his motivation, his values, his aims for his own life, the things in which he finds joy. And of course, it paints one of the most magnificent word pictures of the Lord Jesus that we will find anywhere in the Bible. It contains some of the most memorable statements in the entire Bible, statements that that have made their way into countless songs and conversations. To me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so important, 
be anxious for nothing. We know these phrases, but what do they mean? So easy to pluck them out and stick them on a little sticker on your wall or on a magnet on your fridge and not know actually what they are saying, what they are about. What is Philippians about as a letter? What is its unique message? Or to put it another way, if Philippians wasn't in the New Testament, what would we be missing? Great question to ask of any book in the Bible. What's its core message. Let's read together from Philippians chapter 1. And I'm going to read from the nearly infallible version. And that is the NIV or the Northern Ireland version is what I say when I'm in America. This is Philippians 1 verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, Together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time. I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's step back from this, if you like, this introductory paragraph for a moment and just think of the background into which Paul is writing. Philippi was a Roman colony. Its citizens had a type of Roman citizenship and they had significant rights with respect to the law and property and tax. It was known for its close association with Rome. It was situated in one of the main trade routes. It was an important center of commerce. Its population was estimated at around 10,000, about the size of Balamoney locally here. So you're not dealing with a vast city, but there weren't mega cities in those days. But the church at Philippi is particularly significant biblically and historically as it was the first European church. So we can trace what we are doing here this morning right back to what we're reading about here. As we saw last night from Acts 16, the fascinating story of how God guided Paul and his team to go west rather than east and how this church came to be. It was, of course, mostly a pagan city with a strong imperial cult, as would be expected in such a pro-Roman city. There was also the strong presence of the Dionysus cult. The Roman name was Bacchus, the Greek god of wine and winemaking, as well as fertility and religious ecstasy. 
interesting combination. <laughs> there was a very small Jewish population in Philippi. There was no evidence of a synagogue there, just a place of prayer outside the city where some God-fearing Gentile woman would meet. And it was to that gathering that God guided Paul and used him to bring Lydia, a businesswoman from Thyatira, to faith. And she opened her home, and it became the base of Paul's missionary team and the basis for the new church. And we, we went through the story last night, and I'm not going to repeat it here. This letter is written, in first case, as a thank you letter. As we find later, it is in response to one of the many gifts this church sent to Paul via his friend Epaphroditus, and Paul writes this letter to thank them. But it's clearly much more than that, because Epaphroditus, one of their own, had clearly shared with Paul some of the challenges that were facing the young church at Philippi. And so one of the things is very helpful to do with any New Testament letter. That is to read it with that in mind. Paul was not bored on a Thursday afternoon wondering, oh, I might as well write to my friends here. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit to write a letter that's directed to the actual spiritual conditions and needs of the church. So as you read this week, let me encourage you to do what the medics would probably describe as a differential diagnosis. Look at the symptoms. Ask what, you're, what does this reflect of the local conditions, the, the problems they were facing, the challenges, the weaknesses potentially, the opportunities that they were facing. Because as you do that, we will then begin to be in a better position to see how this applies in our own context. Because while some of the challenges will be different, and certainly the local conditions will be different, a lot of them have a similarity. And we begin to see where this letter in particular is speaking. So let me sketch a few of these in for you. Chapter 1 reveals that there was still opposition to the gospel in Philippi. I say still because there was opposition when Paul first arrived there. But chapter 3 adds to that by telling us there was a growing threat of false teachers trying to persuade this largely Gentile church that in order to be truly Christian, they needed to submit to circumcision and the rituals of Judaism. But at the same time, there were teachers at the other extreme who were promoting a kind of progressive Christianity, advocating in the name of Christian liberty and maturity lifestyle choices that were based on the fulfillment of individual desire on the removal of the category of shame from individual conscience and on the avoidance of any reference to the reality of the eternal world. And if you then go into chapter 4, it touches on the complexity of local church life. That's such an important issue, and we'll get there on Friday. In particular, the relational and functional chaos being caused by a seemingly intractable disagreement between two very committed 
and able woman in the church. Now, the books of the Bible, as I said earlier, aren't simply repetitions of each other. Each has its own distinctive message, its own unique role in the overall story. And Paul doesn't here give us an explicit statement such as, I am writing this because... That would be helpful if he did that. Peter does that kind of thing. Paul does that in some of his letters. So we need to do a little bit of detective work. And one of the most important things, by definition, that any New Testament book will do is to tell us about God. That is the point. It's a revelation of God to us. So with that in mind, ask yourself that question. What is emphasized about God in this letter, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And interestingly, God is presented as a worker. He initiates the work of salvation in us. He completes this work, and he is at work constantly in us. God is the worker. We are called to work out our salvation and daily living because it is God who works in us. He works in us both the willing and the doing for his good pleasure. And in chapter 3, we read that God is the one who strengthens Paul within so that he can work so that he can do all the things that God has called him to do, and particularly to cope with the roller coaster circumstances in which he found himself. He's also the God who richly supplies all their need as they engage in gospel work. He is the God of peace as they deal with the relational dysfunction in the church. All these things are related. How is the Lord Jesus presented? Well, perhaps the best known part of Philippians is a magnificent word portrait in chapter 2 where the Lord Jesus is presented not as the good shepherd. You'll get that in Hebrews, but not here. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis here is in the Lord Jesus as a voluntary slave. The focus is on his mindset, his value system. The mindset of one who, although he was on equal terms with God, who was God, who never ceased to be God, yet he gave up his rights in order to become not just human, but a voluntary slave, obedient to the Father, to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the picture of the Lord Jesus that is presented. And so the question is, why? Why here? Why does he not talk about Jesus as the good shepherd in Philippians? What is the point of drawing their attention and their worship to this aspect of Jesus in this context? That's a great question. Let's hope by the end of this week we can come up with an answer. And the Holy Spirit is presented as the inspirer and protector of our witness and the enabler of our worship. But what seems to me then to bind all these attributes together is that the majority of them have to do in some way with work. God's work in us, our work for him. And that's borne out in the main salvation statement in this letter. 
work out, not work for, but work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Often when we're reading letters, the key is found in the front door. And if we look at the front door, the greeting and the opening few lines, let's have a look at that as we finish this morning. The greeting, of course, is fairly standard for a New Testament letter, except this is the only New Testament letter that is addressed specifically to the elders and deacons as well as the whole church. Now, those terms, elders and deacons, are not simply titled. A title is a label. And as one wise preacher once says, it doesn't matter what label you put on an empty bottle. It's still empty. These are roles, not titles. We live in a title-fixated age. These are roles. The word deacon simply means one who serves. The terms elder, overseer, pastor, shepherd are used interchangeably in the New Testament for the same role, just emphasizing different aspects. People who teach, who shepherd, who lead, who put themselves in harm way, who protect, who care for and cherish those whom God has entrusted to them. The point is that these are workers, These are servants. In other words, this is a letter written by servants to servants. And of course, that fits with what we've discovered so far because God is presented as a worker, Christ as the voluntary slave, the Holy Spirit as the enabler of our witness and our worship. And with that in mind, then, we discover in chapter 2 that it highlights the character and work of a number of servants, Timothy and Epaphroditus. That's not accidental. They're put in as examples, as models to follow. Here's the kind of workers we are to be. And Paul adds his own tiny little example in there, as we will discover. Chapter 3 warns of false workers. There is a right way to work. There's a wrong way to work. Watch out for the dogs, he says, the evil workers, still in the same context. And then in chapter 4, he appeals to women who are workers together with him in the gospel to be of one mind. And he thanks the Philippian church for their repeated partnership with him in the gospel, which is where this main paragraph now from verse 3 begins. Paul thanking them for their work, for their partnership in the gospel. So while this is a letter that is full of joy, full of confidence and peace, It is in the context of service, of work, of adopting the mindset of Christ. And those two are not unconnected. It may well be that the reason sometimes that we lack joy, confidence, and peace is because we're doing nothing. At heart, it is a letter about work. God's work in us 
and our work with him and with one another. And the major theme, I suggest, therefore, is simply this, partnership in the gospel. That's where Paul begins. As he thinks of his friends at Philippi, he gives thanks to them. The emphasis is on the special, gives thanks to God for them. The emphasis is on the special relationship Paul had with them. In all his prayers for them, he's able to pray with joy. Wonderful source of joy. Of course, if you don't pray, there's a source of joy that's missing. Source of joy. Praying with joy. He has them in his heart. He longs for them with all the compassion of Christ, all the affection of Christ. Literally, the bowels of Christ. Now, that's a Hebrew expression, and it may sound strange to us, but it shouldn't, certainly not here. It's a common feature of many cultures to use parts of the human body as metaphors. I have no head for heights. Doesn't mean I have no head, but you understand what it means. I get dizzy when I stand at the edge of the giant's causeway there and look down. Let me give you a hand. I have no stomach for a fight. We do this kind of thing all the time. He has his nose in a book. We ease that. Or the famous Northern Ireland one, I stuck my, I stuck my head through the door and there he was in the middle of his dinner. <laughs> Work that one out. For the Hebrews, the seat of strongest emotions was not the heart as we would put it, in our culture, it was the gut, the intestines, the bowels. Paul openly writes of his affection for them. He has them in his heart. He tells them so. Isn't that interesting? He tells them so. And it's real because he's able to call God as his witness. Because not only does he want them to know this is how he feels about them, but he wants them to believe it. These are not simply people on a prayer list that he occasionally gets to. Chapter 4, he refers to them as his brothers and sisters. You whom I love and long for. Wow, that's strong. My joy and my crown, dear friends. It's a bit challenging in Northern Ireland, isn't it? Certain aspects of our culture, I think, contribute to this, that we don't often know how to display genuine affection for other believers without it turning into a kind of gushing sentimentality, which is simply put on with a smile and have a nice day. And some of us, of course, are so afraid of being hurt that we will never allow ourselves to get close enough to other believers to feel this way about them. This is talking about a, a radical level of friendship based on partnership in the gospel. He felt this way, he says, because of their partnership with him in gospel work. Now, please notice what he's saying. He's not simply saying that because you believe the same things as I do. He's saying you actively engaged with me in the spread 
of the gospel. Lydia was sitting there listening to the letter. The jailer was sitting there listening to this letter, no doubt. And such excitement. Because they were part of it. Both of them had used their homes as a basis for the gospel in Philippi. And they had inspired the church to repeated financial support. Philippi was not a wealthy church. Lydia herself probably contributed quite a percentage of their giving. And yet, they were the first to support Paul, and they did so time and time again. And this is a model, I think, for us of the kind of relationships that can happen where the gospel is at the core. And it was a dangerous thing. They were associating themselves with someone in prison. Someone who was considered by some, including Christians, as a dangerous individual. Indeed, Paul will tell us in this chapter that some Christians were seeking to make his time in chains even more difficult for him. So standing with Paul, even in the first century, could get you into trouble with other Christians. Can I suggest that standing with Paul today can get you in trouble with some professing Christians? Paul is God's apostle to us. He writes with the authority of Christ. We cannot claim to accept Christ and reject Paul, whatever the topic of discussion is. The gospel is at the center of Paul's life, of his thinking, of his praying, of his decision-making, but it's also at the center of his relationship. So it thrills him to see the people he brought to Christ sharing and participating in the same vision. And this raises the obvious question. In what sense am I partnering in the gospel? The Greek word koinonia is often translated in English as fellowship, but that word has, has, is not easy, I think, to use anymore. And common usage here. It has more to do with cups of tea in your hand, as we say, or simply hanging out with friends. We're going to have a time of fellowship, which is really biblically a weird concept, uh, or chilling with friends, as I think we might say these days. Because the New Testament word is a word that's used for being partners in a business, partners in the boat and the fishing industry, being a stakeholder, having skin in the game. You can't have partnership in partnership. It greatly interested me when I visited a church the first time in America, and there's a vast building, and I went into a part of the building, and over one of the rooms, it had this title, Fellowship Hall. So that's where you to go to have fellowship. And it was a cup of tea and all that. And there's nothing wrong with a cup of tea. I'll drink a cup of tea with you. Wonderful. But that's not what this is about. It's being partners. Koinonia happens when we commit together to a shared vision. In this case, it's a vision 
of the gospel. You can't have partnership and partnership. It has to be in something else, something we share in together. And one of those things is the gospel, not just that we believe it, but we are partnering in its defense and in its declaration. So again, the challenge comes back to me. Do I see myself? Do we see ourselves as partners in the gospel? And attending church gatherings doesn't cover this. It's great. Coming to New Horizon doesn't cover it. This is about participation. This is about being a stakeholder in God's work. If you added to your attendance here, prayer, that's the beginning of a partnership. If you added to that then, giving, I was going to suggest if you get the, that coffee mug then and you get your free coffee that you give the money for the free coffee and the 30p you save to the horizon. That's a start. That's just my small contribution to you. <laughs> but you could just come, sit, listen. Wasn't the music great? Wasn't the speaking awful? Or whatever it is you want to say. And go away and talk about it to your friends and it leaves you entirely unmoved and unchanged. Why? Because you don't participate. But beyond those small things, which could be big things for some of us, there's the reality of becoming partners with one another across this country, across this island, across this world in the gospel. That this becomes a central driving passion of ours to personally to be involved, to get others involved. Northern Ireland has a reputation that is wonderful for engagement in world mission. I hope we don't lose that ever. But it's going, it's eroding. The numbers of young people who are beginning to become disaffected for a variety of reasons, and some of those I'm sure will be touched on this week. We need to retain this as a central priority. Our children need to see it in us. They need to see that the gospel means something, that the gospel is a reason for sacrifice, that we can't do all that everybody else is doing because the gospel is at the center of our life, because we understand this world is not the only one there is. There is an eternal world, and we are investing in that eternal kingdom. So our entire life is predicated on that supreme reality. That's what they need to see. And too often what they do see is that our lives are completely consumed by the consuming culture around us. Partners in the gospel, not sitting passively doing nothing. When you're in a business partnership, as some of you will know, you invest in it. You talk about it with your partners. You dream about it. You strategize. You play to each other's strengths. It involves time, effort, money, and skill. My father was like Lydia in the clothing business. He was always, though, looking for ways to partner in the gospel. And we used to keep hundreds of chickens when I was growing up. I was a chicken whisperer. But when it was no longer commercially viable to cope with all these chickens, the chicken houses we had became idle. And one weekend, I casually suggested to my dad that perhaps we could convert them into some kind of 
center where we could do stuff for the young people in the area. And I went back to university, and when I returned home the following weekend, I discovered that he had paid for joiners and plasters to fix up the buildings, and then wisely he gave me 20 pounds, which was a lot in those days, and told me to buy some paint so that I would have some skin in the game and get me painting the walls. And there are a couple of young people got together with me, and over the next few years, dozens of people came to Christ in those chicken houses. And I met my wife in a chicken house. (laughs) So the Good News Center was born. And there are people in this, I met some of them last night, who were reminding me of those days. You don't know the legacy of those simple decisions that you take. They may seem simple to you. Acts of hospitality that have profound global reach. Because some of their kids now are serving the Lord in different parts of the world, as some of my own are also. It's so exciting to be, have we no vision for this? Can we, can we not rise above our fears about the way culture is going and our concerns about Brexit and the value of the pound and all those other things? Can we not rise above that and realize for this moment, at this time, God has called us to this place? and greet it with joy and prayer and thanksgiving for the opportunity rather than gathering the evangelical carts round in a circle and looking at each other in misery. Gospel partnership. I repeat the question. In what ways are you and I partnering in the gospel? I hope that this week in New Horizon will give us time and space to think this through. It fills Paul with joy. We're thinking about that as I finish this morning. I haven't got anywhere near finished what I was planning to, but that's okay because you're going to be reading Philippines all week and that's fine. I'm under no pressure to cover everything. It's just the things that jump out of this at me, that way, the questions that the text raises. Let's take our time to follow God's agenda and see where he is leading us. But as we finish, It fills Paul with joy. One of the things you could do as you read through Philippians is ask, do a little study of joy in Philippians. Especially, where does Paul find his joy? And if you answer that, you will begin to answer the question, where can I find joy? Again, perhaps it is our national temperament. And I can speak as a local. But often it seems to me that there is so little joy about our Christianity. We are perhaps so used to the ethic of duty, which is important, that it hasn't ever been transformed, as Lewis says, into the joy that should come. It's a challenge, isn't it? You and I, where do you find your joy in that beautiful sunset? I love them. Go out with my camera. In my kids and my grandkids. But is that it? Joy in the Lord, that sounds so abstract and super spiritual. Well, it shouldn't. 
One day, you know, we're going to be greeted with this. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Wouldn't it be great to enter a bit of that joy here? Learn what that means. And if we want to learn what that means, follow Paul through in his thinking. And not only does it make Paul joyful, it builds his confidence. His confidence in the Philippine salvation because their partnership is evidence that God has started something in them. And Paul is so confident in God that what God has started, he will finish. That's a magnificent point to end on. Where do you find your confidence? In your service, perhaps? In your spiritual gifts? Do you remember Jesus sent the disciples out, the 70 out, and they came back. They were all excited. Lord, you wouldn't believe what we saw. I mean, demons were cast out and miracles and all this. And the Lord, I imagine him smiling kindly at them. And he said, don't rejoice in this. Rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. Our confidence is not to come from the things we do, the success or otherwise of our ministry life. Our confidence is not to come from our gifts and our abilities and our opportunities. It's to come from the God who started work in us and who will complete it in us. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you this morning. These words resonate with our hearts at so many different levels. We thank you for your wisdom in inspiring Paul to write these so that we could read them and think about them at New Horizon. Guide us through this day, I pray for all the seminar speakers as they share with us. What a fabulous opportunity to learn from so many who have gift and experience in areas perhaps that we don't, and we can learn and we can grow together. But the overriding thing, Lord, is inspire us through today and through this week to likewise become partners in the gospel in this country and across the world. Speak to us, we pray, and we thank you and we bow before you as our great God and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.